0: Welcome to Evidence Based Radio. It is that time of the week where we talk about science and skepticism. And um, as always, you can find me throughout the week on the Facebook page, uh, Evidence Based Radio. And you can find this and other episodes as podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, and other fine purveyors of audio files. And um, this week, especially, or I should say the last Um, I have posted many things to the Facebook page. I uh, went a little maybe crazy a bit yesterday with posts uh, about International Working Women's Day. And um, so, yeah, I definitely recommend that if you are interested in finding out more about things like how amazing women have been making things that you didn't even realize they were doing or amazing women who have created or discovered things that you totally didn't realize women were involved in, um, I definitely suggest going to the Facebook page. There's all sorts of things, uh, videos and articles and all sorts of, uh, it's a veritable torrent of links. (laughs) Uh, So yeah. And if you can't get there now, they'll be there waiting for you. If you someday just have a feeling that you want to learn more about some amazing women in science, there is a whole collection there for you. And of course, you know, women have traditionally been shut out of the front halls of science. Uh, It's been well known, though, that they were doing a lot of work behind the scenes. Um, And so I just want to uh, celebrate that a little bit today, even though we're a day late uh, and by the way, I do want to be clear that when I say women, I always mean individuals who identify as female. I was actually very heartened by the fact that a live science uh, slideshow of 10 amazing women who turned the tide of history uh, included Sylvia Ray Rivera, a trans woman who was on the front lines of the Stonewall Riot and was a pioneer of advocating for trans rights. So that was pretty exciting. But first tonight, um, I actually want to celebrate a different thing. Um, I want to celebrate the anniversary of the Supreme Court decision in McCullum versus Board of Education, uh, which was also yesterday. Of course, uh, this does tie in because the central figure in this story is a fierce woman, in fact, Um so in a time where we seem to be rolling back on all sorts of important progress in this country, I think that it's very, very timely to be reminded of how things used to be and who and why uh, we fought to uh, make changes, who did it and why. So in McCullum v. Board of Education, a school district was instructed to, quote, Terminate their practice of holding religious education classes in public school buildings on school time. And so this was back in 1945. So this was a very early case. It's a very important case. Um, Jim McCullum was a fourth grader in a Champaign, Illinois public school. Uh, He came home one day with a permission slip. For his mother to sign, granting permission to attend classes taught by former missionaries and so called religious educators. Now, his mother looked at the uh, information about this class and immediately realized that it was basically Christian proselytizing. But it turns out that, uh, as with the way of many of these things, uh, even today, uh, students who were not granted permission would be forced to sit in the hall during the religious studies class, and in fact, he ended up by himself in a small room. Um, and but he did. Uh, Vashti McCullum, Jim's mother, and an agnostic. Uh, who died in 2006 at the age of 93, uh, refused to sign the permission slip. And Jim, rather predictably, was singled out by his fellow students because he did not attend the class. Now, his parents even actually sent him to live in with relatives in New York for a time because it actually became very, very uh fraught and actually somewhat dangerous for the family but despite this they absolutely held their ground. Uh, The family were harassed by the community uh, and on Halloween 1945 Vashti was pelted with rotten fruits and vegetables uh, when she answered the door to a uh, group of what turned out to be hooligans. Someone even killed the family's cat, which I'm particularly upset about. <laughs> uh, Jim's father was an atheist, but he was not particularly vocal about his non-belief. It was Vashti McCullum who led the charge against religious indoctrination in the public school setting, uh, but with the full blessing of her family. Uh, and so both... She and her husband suffered professionally as well. Uh, She had been working at the University of Illinois at at Champaign uh, as a physical education instructor, but was summarily terminated. Uh, John was an instructor at the university, but found that his career uh, was suddenly stalled and he was not able to progress. Uh, Nevertheless, she and her family persisted. (laughs) Uh, They lost twice in state court. Uh, However, their eventual Supreme Court win, an eight to one court decision, uh, led to one of the first major victories in upholding the Establishment Clause and set an important standard which clearly delineated that government could not use public funds to promote or support religion. Writing for the majority, Justice Hugo Black noted the use of taxpayer-supported property for religious instructions and the close cooperation between the school authorities and the religious council in promoting religious education. And, you know, he noted that as not okay. (laughs) He also added... Here, not only are the state's tax-supported public school buildings used for the dissemination of religious doctrines, the state also affords sectarian groups an invaluable aid in that it helps to provide pupils for their religious classes through the use of the state's compulsory public school machinery. This is not separation of church and state. The ruling was... uh, Foundational, definitely. Uh, Rulings in 1962 and 1963 that struck down official school prayer and Bible readings both used this as a precedent. Um, And so it was just an extremely important moment in um, legal history for the uh, separation of church and state. Of course, with the likes of Betsy DeVos as Secretary of Education, uh, campaigns to allow school vouchers to be used for private religious schools, as well as the inevitable cases of this very sort of behavior, religious uh, indoctrination courses, continuing in some corners of the country, despite having been illegal since the 1940s, it remains important to remember that these things happen and have happened in the past and to advocate continued vigilance in matters of separation of church and state. Now, I've expressed uh, very uh, much lately that I don't really, uh, I've lost interest in those sorts of fights about, um, you know things like crosses on public lands and things like that. Um, Those sorts of things, I just, I have a little bit less interest in these days as far as really pushing for an absolutist version of um, the separation of church and state. But I do absolutely think that belief, I actually absolutely believe that Religious proselytizing um, or religious classes that are sectarian have no place in public schools. Religion in schools should be present only as it pertains to history, political science, or English, or in courses in comparative religion where all religions are treated equally. It's the sectarian nature of the courses that was at issue, not the idea that you can talk about religion in a school. And of course, there's always that, that, uh, you know, rebuttal, and you have to remind people that children can pray in school, children can bring Bibles to school, children can do whatever they want as far as religious observances, as long as they don't uh, disturb the class, um, you know, flip the flow of the class and things like that. Children are allowed free expression of religion as far as it can be allowed in a public school setting. The only thing that has been outlawed is the actual school itself, the administration and the teachers engaging in sectarian religious indoctrination. And um, so, yeah, it's definitely important to remember that this is not about completely and utterly removing religion from the school. It's simply removing it from the uh authority of the school. Um, and of course, what's nice about this is that uh both Vashti McCullum and uh still now her son Jim have continued uh to this day to fight to maintain the wall between religion and the state. Um and of course, again, this is very good because, in addition to issues in the Department of Education, uh, news has come out recently that Scott Pruitt, head of the Environmental Protection Agency, uh, extremely problematic person in general, apparently, unsurprisingly, is not only a climate change skeptic, but has also stated. Uh, This was back in 2005. That there aren't sufficient scientific facts to establish the theory of evolution. And even though this was back in 2005, I doubt that his beliefs on the subject have, well, evolved much. And on an even more worrying front for the lives of. Uh, Americans in this country, the Department of Justice has become a proving ground for legal challenges to the country's own secular laws, which prevent discrimination and require equal protection. On the 31st of January, the DOJ announced an update to the U.S. Attorney's Manual, which added in a new section called, quote, Associate Attorney General's Approval and Notice Requirements for Issues Implicating Religious Liberty. This requires all 93 offices across the country to appoint a religious liberty point of contact and in response to the changes to the US attorney's manual update Allison Gill legal and policy director of American Atheists uh, articulating her concern stated this is a breathtaking expansion of religious privilege in the DOJ these policies change this these policy change significantly Policy changes significantly undermine the rule of law and favor religious beliefs at the expense of non-discrimination and equal protection. Um, And so, yeah, because the issue is, is that it talks about religious liberty, liberty, but there is absolutely no uh, understanding of the idea that there could be cases of uh, atheists or agnostics who are also having issues with what is, broadly speaking, religious liberty. It's clearly meant to be a sectarian Christian um, idea that they are interested in. So yeah, no fun. Um, but luckily, we have amazing people still with us and uh, amazing people from the past that we can look up to like Vashti McCullum, um And we can continue to work towards making sure that things stay the way that they are and get better um, eventually. And so um, one of the things that Jim McCollum suggests is that you can join local organizations like the Rotary Club and, um, you know, just tell people uh, if you are that you are non-religious, that you're an atheist or an agnostic, and, you know, just remind people that you're there and you're a perfectly reasonable and good human being that, you know, you don't need to have God in your life. Um, and it's fine if other people do, but it's not necessary. Okay. So let's move on. Um, I just want to take a minute to talk about this, uh, story because it's been pretty much everywhere on the internet, uh, which is about the Alexa uh, personal assistant. Uh, if you haven't heard, uh, the internet was a buzz yesterday with reports that Amazon's Alexa's personal assistant program had begun to quote laugh creepily uh, without prompting. Well, it turns out uh, as these sorts of stories almost always do, to have some rather mundane explanations. So uh, if you have an Alexa or other speaker assistant, you may have noticed that they're not always the best at interpreting human voices. Uh, And so in most cases, Amazon believes that commands to turn on or off lights uh, are being misinterpreted by Alexa as a command to laugh. Uh, and so they have said that they are going to add an extra layer of, um, commands for Alexa, uh, before she will laugh for you, uh, so that people won't continue to be, uh, worried that Alexa has become, uh, sentient and is going to start taking over, uh, their homes and their lives, um, (laughs) because of course that's inevitably what people worry about is that, um you know, Alexa will become sentient. Um, And we could have a whole conversation about uh, AI and the possibility or lack thereof, of uh, the sort of dystopian future of Terminator or the matrix where um, AIs have taken over the world. Um, You know, there is some, there are some concerns, but I think that right now we are not at Anywhere near the point where an AI could actually successfully uh, take over pretty much anything. And so unless there's some, you know, mad scientist in a volcano somewhere building amazing AIs, from what I can see of technology that's out there, we're not there yet. Okay, so I do want to talk about a couple of amazing women in science, uh, from history in honor of yesterday's, uh, International Women's Day. And, uh, so I do always try and pick some people who have, uh, either made serious marks on science or, uh, especially those who have recent, who have until recently been either ignored or forgotten. And, um, so, I also like to make sure that I am representing women of color because they are especially those who are often ignored or forgotten. So first tonight, I want to talk about Gladys West. She is an African. She is an African American woman who has had a forty-two year career as a mathematician at the Navy base at Dahlgren in Virginia. Um, it used to be called the Navy Navy Proving Ground. It turns out that West was one of the pivotal members of the team whose work led to the creation of the global positioning system during the 50s and 60s. Describing her role, Captain Godfrey Weeks, then commanding officer at the Naval Surface Warfare Center, Dahlgren Division, as it was called, noted she rose through the ranks, worked on the satellite Geodesy, which is science that measures the size and shape of the earth, and contributed to the accuracy of GPS and the measurement of satellite data. As Gladys West started her career as a mathematician at Dahlgren in 1956, she likely had no idea that her work would impact the world for decades to come. He also wrote that her work played an integral role in the overall uh, project. So Gladys grew up as the child of sharecroppers, um, and as a child, Gladys Mae Brown realized that she wanted more from life than picking tobacco, corn, and cotton, or working in a tobacco factory. And so, after finding out that the valedictorian and salutatorian uh, from her high school would receive scholarships to Virginia State College. Uh, Now, Virginia State University, uh, she took to her studies and made sure that she made all of the best grades. She succeeded and graduated at the top of her class, thus securing her uh, scholarship. She majored in math and actually taught for two years, uh, taught mathematics before returning for a master's degree. Hired in 1956, she became the second black woman at the base and one of only four black employees. Luckily for her, uh, one of them was Ira West, uh, whom she would go on to marry in 1957. Now, this was a time when computers were in their infancy. Ira West's work focused on developing computer programs for submarine-based ballistic missiles, but again, Gladys West's work led her to satellites. She gathered information from satellites, pulling data from, from them that would help determine their exact location as they transmitted from orbit. And this information was then loaded into the huge supercomputers that would have filled rooms at the pace at the base uh, back in this time. So if you've seen the movie Hidden Figures or seen photos from the time, you'll know what I'm talking about these sort of giant Cray supercomputers. And so you know that probably had the processing uh, power of. I can't even think of something, maybe a Game Boy (laughs) in this uh, day and age. And so her work focused on creating computer programs to determine geoid heights, uh, which are precise surface elevations from the satellites. And she was always extremely proud of her work ethic and attention to detail. Uh, She worked long hours and was very, very um, conscientious about her work. And in fact, she was given several awards, including a commendation for her work as project manager for the CSAT Radar Altimetry Project. CSET uh, was the first satellite, launched in 1978, uh, that was created specifically for remote sensing of the oceans with synthetic aperture radar. This involved planning and executing several highly complex computer algorithms, which have to analyze an enormous amount of data, Ralph Niemann, her department head, wrote. You have used your knowledge of computer applications to accomplish this in an efficient and timely manner. And in fact, he noted that her work cut the processing time in half for the project, which saved the base thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, She continued to uh, be an inspiration or continues uh, because she is still with us, uh, even after retiring from her position in 1998. She had already been working towards her doctorate in philosophy from Virginia Tech. Uh, she had been taking basically one class at a time. She was just about to start her dissertation when unfortunately she had a stroke. It impaired her vision, her hearing uh, and balance and uh, the use of her right side. But in true uh In the true spirit of a fighter, she did not let this get her down. Uh, She soon decided that she was going to get back up and uh, get back into things. So uh, she and uh, her husband began taking courses at the local YMCA. And uh, so, yeah. And not only did she suffer the stroke, but she also had a quadruple bypass later, and also uh, underwent treatment for breast cancer. But again, she is still going strong right along with her husband. Um, And so, yeah, she is inspiring in many, many ways. Um, Hilariously, though, this is probably my favorite part of this story. She doesn't use GPS and prefers to rely on a paper map. Her eldest daughter, Carolyn Oglesby, remarked, I asked her why she didn't just use the Garmin GPS, since she knows the equations that she helped write are correct. She says the data points could be wrong or outdated, so she has to have that map. Now, of course, those of us who have used Google Maps or other mapping services uh, probably commiserate with her feelings. Uh, More than once, I have ended up in a place where I'm just flabbergasted as to how Google thought that this was where I was supposed to be. Um, and, you know, that's down to the data, uh, because as people should know, uh, one of the most important tenets of computer science is that a program is only good as the data that it's being fed and that it is able to analyze. Um, and so if you have out of date information, or if a road is Uh, marked in a place that's just slightly off from where it is. You end up, um, especially in the early days of GPS, with people not paying attention and, you know, driving into the ocean and things like that. Um, So I don't blame her for wanting that paper map. Okay, let's take a moment and break for some PSAs and some show promos, and then we will come back and talk about another amazing uh, woman from science history. Hang on. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can, too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, Call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Classical music on Valley Free Radio. Tune in to Andy Musique Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m. for an hour of beautiful music to start your day. Hosted by Lucy and Larry. The Lily Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lily Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and 2-hour sessions on internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. You are listening to Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, Northampton, 103.3 FM. I'm Mayor David Narkowitz, and I support Northampton's community radio station. It's important to make sure your family has a plan in case of an emergency. We talked to this family to see if each of them knew where to meet if they were not together when something happened. If a natural disaster happened and we were outside the home, we would all meet at the park. That's our meeting point. I'm meeting places at our neighbor's house because she is my mom's good friend. We all have a meeting spot, which is a bus stop. Is your plan any better? To learn more about making an emergency plan for your family, go to www.mass.gov slash MEMA. Brought to you by the Ready Massachusetts U.S. Department of Homeland Security and the Ad Council press start to continue video game remixes nerdcore hip-hop and chiptunes from across the internet tune in every monday night from 9 to 11 on valley Fruit radio wxojlp 1033 fm and check out facebook.com slash start to continue for links to show notes random game news and podcasts of previous episodes press start to continue all under needs to know And we are back. And so uh, I was initially going to talk about Chen Xiong Wu, but I realized that I've actually talked about her before. Uh, She was a Chinese-American physicist who worked on the Manhattan Project Uh, She's also one of those women who often comes up in conversations about uh, Nobel Prize snubs. Uh, There is a distinctive uh, issue uh, with the gender uh, parity in uh, Nobel Prizes in the sciences. Um, Women are often, and even still, not even in the prizes that women win more often, you know, the... uh, Literature and sort of peace prizes. Even there, the disparity between men and women is still not particularly good. But anyways, since I have talked about her before, and there is plenty of information out there on her, um, I wanted to talk about someone who I think was a little is a little more obscure, but pretty fascinating. And so, this is another woman of color, uh, this time from the other side of the world. Uh, And it is Kono Yasui. And she was the first Japanese woman to earn a PhD in science in 1927 from the Tokyo Imperial University. And so, with typical humility, with the typical humility of the culture, she said upon receiving her degree at the age of 47, blessed. Blessed by the understanding of those around me, and with nothing to encumber me, I have simply plodded along a path of my own choosing. As we'll see from her story, that's a little bit of a uh, sort of very, very um, nice way of putting some of the things that she had to deal with. uh. And so, yes, diplomatic, that's the word I was looking for. It's a very diplomatic way of putting it. And uh, what she was actually doing with her life was fighting a quiet uphill battle against a culture that prized women as wives and mothers and little else. Now, luckily, she actually had the support of her parents. Her family owned a shipping business, and in elementary school, her father came gave her a copy of Encouragement of Learning by Fukuzawa Yukichi. And he was actually the founder of Keio University and an advocate for education reform and women's rights. And this is actually a philosophical tome that she was given in elementary school. Um, So you can sort of see where the trajectory of her learning was going to be going. And uh, she was first encouraged to pursue her intellectual interests at home. Uh, luckily, she was able to do that because this was Japan's Meiji period, uh, where the country had begun to rapidly modernize and industrialize. However, in order to build new industries, science and engineering were naturally seen as essential so the key was to establish educational institutions modeled upon Western universities/ slash colleges right authors Naonori Kodate and kashiiko Kodate in Japanese women in science and engineering history of policy change And so while this might seem like it would be good for Yasui, the turn of the century had not yet really brought women into the realm of education in the West either. So looking to the West did not really open up areas of opportunity that were already lacking for girls and women in the country. Girls were taught separately from boys and were trained mainly in order to achieve ryosai Kembo. Uh, which translates to good wives and wise mothers. Prefectures weren't even required to offer secondary education to women until 1899. Um, They were not allowed into the elite imperial universities until 1913. And in 1913, only three women actually qualified to enroll or wanted to enroll. The only real training roles for women were as teachers, which is, of course, a safe role that conformed properly to expectations. Despite the challenges, she graduated from high school and was able to enroll at Tokyo Women's Higher Normal School, uh, or TWHNS, uh, which was actually given college status in 1890. During her time there, she published her first paper, Weber's Organ of Carp Fish, in Zoological Science. This made her the first woman to publish in a Japanese science journal. She then became an assistant professor in 1907, and while not supported by any kind of research grants or anything like that um, by a research university, Yasui embarked on a course of research in plant cytology, which is the study of plant cells. In 1911, her independent research paid off with the publication of her study on the life history of Salvinia natans, which was actually published in the British journal Annals of Botany. The study included 119 drawings and was the first study published by a Japanese woman in a foreign journal. Because of her amazing work, the college uh, petitioned the Ministry of Education to support her studying overseas because she was barred from studying at the Imperial Universities. At first, they refused. They agreed to support her only after she made two extremely gendered concessions. First, she was required to list research in home economics as part of her area of study. And she was also required to agree that she would never marry, that she would devote her life to science. And it's just amazing to me that that she was so dedicated to her studies that she was willing to deal with that, frankly, insane amount of uh, gendered requirement And, um, yeah, the ministry was not exactly, uh, friendly to women. So, uh, of the women that they sponsored, I think it was like, they sponsored like over 3000, uh, people to go and study, uh, outside of Japan. And of those, I think 36 were women and almost all of them were either for, um, to study, uh, English or to study, um, physical education. So yeah, um, they didn't have a great track record. So this isn't surprising, even though it's incredibly upsetting. And so um, she decided to concede to all of those. And so in 1914, uh, she studied at the University of Chicago doing research on the morphology of an aquatic fern species. Now, she had intended to next go and study in Germany. But World War One in uh, Intervened And she was forced to stay in the US. Uh, she ended up at Radcliffe uh, and studied under Edward C. Jeffrey at Harvard. It was here that she began to study coal. She returned to Japan in 1916 and continued to study Japanese coal. Uh, She returned to her alma mater, T.W.H.N.S., and in 1919, in another first, received a grant from the Ministry of Education to continue her studies in cytology. Apparently, uh, agreeing to all of their draconian measures eventually did pay off. (laughs) Uh, She published 99 papers over her career and often actually went into the field, delving deep into coal mines to pick out her own specimens. She discovered six ancient plant species, including a species of sequoia. But what was really amazing is that her work showed that it was geological upheavals, not microbes that caused plants to turn to sediment and then carbonize to become coal. It was this work, published in 1927, that led the Tokyo Imperial University to award her a doctoral degree in science, even though she was not a formal student. She also took time away from her research to campaign for other women's higher education and helped TWHNS to become a national research university for women in 1949, um, when it was renamed Ochanomizu University. And um, she then became a professor of science at the university, um, and she stayed there until she retired as professor emeritus in 1952. Now, interestingly, but perhaps unsurprisingly, Yasui did not support efforts to create women-only groups. She felt it supported the idea that women were inferior or different and refused an invitation to join the Society for Women Scientists. She also refused to treat her female students like girls or with special treatment. However, along with Chika Kurudo, Kuruda, the second woman to earn a PhD in science, she established the Yasui Kuroda Scholarship, which funded women's work in the natural sciences. Though rarely willing to talk about herself, she is quoted as having said, I do not seek fame, nor do I desire high status, but will be content to know that my work lives on after me. So I am happy to contribute to keeping her work and her life alive in people's memories. So, yeah, very cool woman who I actually hadn't heard about until uh, just the other day. And uh, so, yes. And again, this is still timely. Um, So there was a recent uh, blog post that I read by the amazing uh, Dr. Jen Gunter, uh, whose blog you should also be reading. And so the other day, she wrote a entry about a sort of think piece in the LA Times, uh, which purported to uh, uncover the shocking fact that there are a lack of men in uh, OBGYN residencies. The piece noted that only 17% of new residents were male, and that male OBGYNs were worried that the, quote, lack of diversity could weaken the field apparently it sends quote a horrible message to men and with the lack of men we might quote lose the next person who is going to find a cure for cancer unquote uh and those were quotes pulled by gunter from the original la times piece um and so as you may expect She, uh, nor I, are particularly impressed by this argument. Uh, She notes herself that currently 75% of pediatrician residents are women, uh, but there are no think pieces about this being a worry, nor has any ink been spilled, at least metaphorically, lamenting the female majorities in family medicine or psychiatry. The reason, she suspects, these fields tend to make less money than OBGYNs. She also points out that few pieces are written about the dearth of women in male-dominated fields, such as cardiology or neurosurgery, and how that might affect research breakthroughs. And in fact, that's actually um, quite a problem because women do actually have physiological differences from men. Um, That's one of the problems that people had for a long time with heart attacks is that the uh, advice was all based on how men uh, react to Uh, two heart attacks. She also points out the fact that women continue to face discrimination across all disciplines of medicine. And so if men do want to go into OBGYN, they will not face any actual uh, discrimination. So she's pretty sure that uh, OBGYNs being predominantly women isn't actually going to be detrimental to patients, Uh, at least in the abstract. You know, there might be certain uh, OBGYNs that are not as good as others, but in the abstract uh, idea of women, it's it's not a problem. And in fact, this is an area in which women who are the sort of consumers, one could say, of most of the services often actually prefer women physicians. Many have reported that male OBGYNs basically don't have great bedside manner or just literally don't understand what women are going through. Um, And so I thought that was really interesting that even in today's uh, more enlightened, but certainly not fully enlightened uh, times, we are still dealing with this idea that men are essential to all of these fields and that women can't possibly uh, make do without them. All right. So now I did want to switch over for the uh, end of the show and talk about some science that's not uh, related to uh, women or anything like that in specific terms. So um, I I really thought this was an interesting little story, this first one. And the second one is a continuation of something we've been talking about before. So let's get into it. Uh, the first story is about a tiny diamond and the important inclusion that it inc- that it contains. The diamond in question comes from South Africa's Cullinan mine and contains a mineral named calcium silicate perovskite. And so, what's interesting about this is that we've known it existed, but we've never actually seen it before in nature. Uh, The findings were published this week in the journal Nature, and uh, the importance of this is that it provides an important clue to how the Earth's inner structure behaves. Now, oddly enough, calcium silicate perovskite, uh, despite having never been found in nature until this very moment, is suspected of being quite possibly the fourth most abundant mineral in the interior of the planet. It is expected to be quite prevalent in slabs of oceanic crust, which have been subsumed into the planet's mantle um, at the Earth's tectonic boundaries. So um, the way that the boundaries work is that there are two, there's a mid-Atlantic ridge um, and there's another ridge where the oceans are pulling apart. And then there are other places that are subduction zones where basically one plate of ocean is being pushed Uh, back into the interior of the planet uh, underneath other ones, other tectonic plates. Um, And so researchers had theorized that it existed, but again, they had never been able to find a sample uh, because it tends to be found, at least in theory, around 435 miles below the planet's surface. Nobody had ever managed to keep this mineral stable at the Earth's surface, Surface study co-author Graham Pearson, a professor in the University of Alberta's Department of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences, said in a statement, the only possible way of preserving this mineral at the Earth's surface is when it's trapped in an unyielding container like a diamond. So the team found the mineral in a diamond just three millimeters across. Um, And it was found just over a half mile below the surface, which is, of course, much less than 435 miles. Uh, But despite this, they do believe it was originally created deep below the Earth's surface in a subduction zone and has just through geological processes eventually been pushed up um, where we can actually, you know, find it. The calcium silicate perovskite inclusion can actually be seen with could actually be seen with the naked eye after the diamond was polished, uh, but it still required an international team to properly document its composition. X-ray and spectroscopy tests were able to confirm that it is indeed the virtually unattainable from the surface mineral. Diamonds are really unique ways of seeing what's in the Earth, Pearson said, and the specific composition of the perovskite perovskite inclusion in this particular diamond very clearly indicates the recycling of oceanic crust into earth's lower mantle it provides fundamental proof of what happens to the fate of oceanic plates as they descend into the depths of the ocean so that is very cool uh, for us to have been able to find from this tiny little diamond um it's it's very small but um, it's very interesting. And so the, the um, mineral sort of looks like a kind of looks like a silvery inclusion in the uh, clear diamond. And continuing with Earth science, uh, I wanted to bring you an update on the saga of the Earth's magnetic field and the possibility that we're approaching perhaps maybe possibly um, a pole shift. Now, the first thing I always do when I talk about the pole shift is to remind people, um, because there are often sort of uh, hyperbolic stories on the internet about this, that there's virtually no danger to humans. There is no point in the geological history where we know that a pole shift happened where we see a commiserate uh, mass extinction. So there's no, we don't have to worry about it. It's The way that this works does not end up creating uh, some sort of whole scale uh, problem for life on Earth. So it's not a problem. It's mostly just really interesting and neat and weird. Now, there is a danger to satellites uh, because their electronics can be uh, fried, basically, uh, satellites that are in low Earth orbit uh, that are generally protected from the sun's harmful radiation by the electric field. Um, but again, there's no evidence of mass extinctions or anything connected to polar shifts. So uh, animals and people should just be perfectly fine. Now, what I like about this story is that it actually involves archaeology. Uh, so it turns out that uh, there is a large area of weakened magnetic field, which we've talked about before, called the South Atlantic Anomaly. It stretches from Chile to Zimbabwe. And um, yeah, it's, it's basically at this point, it's weak enough that they actually send satellites around it. They don't send satellites through that part of the uh, magnetic field. We've known for quite some time that the magnetic field has been changing, but we didn't really know if this was unusual for the region on a longer timescale or whether it was normal, says physicist Vincent Haray from the University of Rochester in New York. Part of the reason for this is that there isn't a lot of archaeomagnetic data uh, or physical evidence of Earth's changing magnetism preserved in the archaeological record. However, one group of ancient Africans um, who lived in the Limpopo River Valley, uh, which borders Zimbabwe, South Africa, and Botswana, a region within the anomaly of today, did something very useful for modern geophysicists. Around a thousand years ago, this group of Bantu-speaking people responded to droughts with, well, what is a rather severe... Uh, an extreme ritual, but is really helpful to us today. They sought to cleanse their villages by burning down their clay huts and grain bins. They hoped that this offering would help bring rain. Now, it may not have brought rain, but it certainly brought today's geophysicists a window into the magnetic field at the time of the rituals. When you burn clay at very high temperatures, you actually stabilize the magnetic minerals. And when they cool, from these very high temperatures, they lock in a record of the Earth's magnetic field. Noted geophysicist John Tarduno, uh, a member of the team, when you burn clay at very high temperatures, you actually stabilize the magnetic minerals. And when they cool from these very high temperatures, they lock in a record of the Earth's magnetic field. Um, Sorry that said that twice <laughs> we were looking for recurrent behavior of anomalies because we think that's what is happening today and causing the south atlantic anomaly we found evidence that these anomalies have happened in the past and this helps us contextualize the current changes in the magnetic field so basically by d- examining the burnt clay remains they could see weakenings in the field similar to today's at several periods in history. Um, So similar fluctuations occurred in the years 400 to 450 CE, 700 to 750 CE, and 1225 to 1550 CE. And so this shows that the current fluctuation is part of a longer pattern. We're getting stronger evidence that there's something unusual about the core mantle boundary under Africa that could be having an important impact on the global magnetic field, Tarduno says. Now, the weakening, which has been going on for around 160 years, is thought to actually be caused by a reservoir of dense rock called the African Large Low Shear Velocity Province. And so this sits about 1800 miles below the African continent. And researchers uh, once believed that the pole reversal could basically start anywhere in the core. Um, But these new findings suggest that there are certain areas in the core mantle boundary, like this low shear velocity province, uh, where the shifts actually are much more likely to occur uh, rather than at any point in the core, regardless of its composition. We now know this unusual behavior has occurred at least a couple of times before the past 160 years and is part of a bigger long term pattern, Hare says. However, it's simply too early to say for certain whether this behavior will lead to a full pole reversal. So, obviously, this is one of those places where more research is needed, um, which is a lot of places uh, in science, but that's why we continue to have science and continue to do all sorts of amazing things. And there are plenty of things out there for the next generation of amazing young women and young men uh, to discover. Um, so, yeah, uh, I am very interested in the uh, poll reversal information, because it's just such an interesting thing to think about. Um, And so we will continue to see how it shapes up. But again, there is no worry for uh, humans at all. Okay, that is me for tonight. Uh, Do stay tuned for civil politics coming up next. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro And thank you for listening.